Welcome to the Real Life Resilience Podcast. Stories of recovery from life's most difficult trauma with Stacey Brookman. In the context of community, having people say, Rachel, do you feel like you're at all ready to start shifting from I'm a fearful, anxious person to I'm actually a very resilient person who survived some really terrifying things. And that's that paradigm shift I'm talking about, that as we get to start telling our stories, then we start to see a more full picture. Hey guys, this is Stacy Brookman, and I'm glad you're listening to Real Life Resilience, the podcast with stories of real people who have gone through real tough situations. Today, my guest is a storm-born woman of the Oklahoma Plains who conquered her anxiety by doing story work with her past. So if you've had an anxious mind or know someone who does, stay tuned. Before we discover more, let me share something with you that might change your life. You've been through tough times in your life. We all have. But there's a powerful truth. Your stories will reveal wisdom that you don't know you possess. The question now is, where do you start? There's a simple, tested step-by-step flow for discovering your life theme and putting your life into a beautiful story. A story that allows you to be the best possible version of yourself. Register now for Stacy's next free webinar where she reveals the four simple, proven methods to writing the first chapter of your life story this week. Simply click on the link in the show notes or head to stacybrookman.com webinar. I'd love to hear from listeners personally and I answer my own emails. So drop me a line and let me know what you found interesting in this episode or ask me a question. My email is stacy at stacybrookman.com. Now let's welcome pastor, theologian, teacher, and therapeutic practitioner, Rachel Clinton. Rachel, thank you so much for being on the show today. I would love to know a little bit more about your background and how you came to be at the Allender Center. Sure. Well, I often refer to myself as a stormborn woman of the Oklahoma Plains. And I started using the word stormborn way before Daenerys Targaryen on Game of Thrones. If, you know, some people, <laughs> like that's a tagline she uses. And part of why I say that is just because any good Oki knows how to watch the weather and how to pay attention to storms and know the warning signs because oftentimes it is a matter of life and death. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of why I use that metaphor for myself is because I literally grew up in a storm-born region and learned to watch for signs and in some ways was kind of formed by that kind of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And metaphorically, there were a lot of storms in my wow. world that I was learning to watch for signs and reading energy that's building and learning like what's safe and what's not and how to take precautions and how to try to prevent and different things. And so over a long winding road, found myself in Seattle at Mars Hill Graduate School at the time to study a Master of Divinity, mm-hmm. was drawn this way because I was in ministry with teenagers and was encountering a lot of trauma and a lot of like painful stories and realized that although I had incredible training in biblical studies and sociology and ministry and theology, I didn't quite know how to help people in some of these contexts. Or I felt that sense of like, I'm offering really good care and spiritual formation, but it seems like people need more. Mm-hmm. And what am I missing? And so I purposely came out to Mars Hill Graduate School, which is now called the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology, because they had this very relational, in-storied way of training their ministry leaders and counselors and theologians. And so, 
I just was like, I think that's the training I need. And so came out to school and my second year in the MDiv program, Dan Allender was writing a book on Sabbath and he needed some research assistance. I applied for the position and I got it along with another person and spent the year researching Sabbath with Dan. Wow. We used to do these Sabbath retreats and it was my first encounter doing story work. In some ways, I kind of got invited to be a part of the Allender Center from its inception and the rest is kind of history. But what's interesting is that I, in coming to the Seattle School, actually had to start telling my stories. And I would have told you 11 years ago, like, I don't need to work in trauma for myself. Like, I will work in trauma for, like, other people. And so, it's been a really interesting journey in some ways to learn how to help others by learning how to help myself. What have you learned about trauma and story work? And what exactly is story work that the Allender Center does? Well, you know, one of the things we really believe is that we all need witnesses to our stories because most especially our formative stories, like those stories that take place when we're younger, where we've known heartache and harm. Because when we're young, we don't have the capacity to see the full picture, right? Right. I mean, actually, even when we're older, we don't have the capacity to see the full (laughs) picture. We can only see what we can see. So, when we invite other people to read our stories with us, a lot of times they can see, they help us tell the truth more fully. Because we make a lot of assumptions about ourselves when we're young, when we experience harm. And a lot of that is actually just the natural response to trauma and the body's desire to survive. Mm -hmm. Like it's resilience. Like that's one of the kind of ironic things is that our bodies are wired to be resilient. And so if we're experiencing a threatening situation or a heartbreaking situation or a scary situation, a lot of times we will interpret that to be something of our fault. Mm -hmm. And that's why you see a lot of people who have a lot of shame and a lot of judgment connected to parts of them that were really formed when they were younger. And those patterns play out over our lifetime if we don't start to tell our stories and understand why we relate to the world in the way that we do. So we might interpret more present story of pain or suffering as like this one-off event in a relationship when there's something in us often, there are patterns playing out that feel very familiar, but we haven't had the luxury of doing the work to go back and say, where were these styles of relating in us actually formed? What are the stories that have shaped who we are? And so that's part of why we invite people to start to tell their stories and that story matters, especially in a Christian context. If you believe in the stories of the text, then there's already a proclamation that we're storied people. And so, how are our stories kind of colliding with this larger story? Well, Rachel, can you give us some examples of how would that typically play out in your adult life and then go back to childhood and say, okay, here's what sometimes happens and and tell us what is trauma as a young adult or a child. And I'm going back because I went recently to the story weekend that you all had, which was fabulous. And I'm like, I had a normal childhood. I'm good, you know, but I'll I'll write a little story about it, sure. (laughs) And I discovered, wow, there was trauma back in my childhood that really did affect me as an adult. So, can you give us some examples that you've seen come across? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's just always important and helpful for people to hear and to know is that in some ways, no family is perfect. No human is perfect. Mm -hmm. So, there's always going to be some absence of love in places that we need it. And that doesn't always correlate to like 
trauma, but it certainly correlates to heartbreak and loss. It can feel really daunting or even like, you know, you hear people say, well, that's really dramatic. And yet, these stories that have shaped them are actually wreaking havoc in their life, but they don't want to like go back and tend to them because it feels dramatic. Mm -hmm. So one thing that we know is true about trauma is trauma is really just a distressing or threatening event that you experience that gives your body an experience of threat or like the threat of annihilation. Now, what's true is that nothing happens in a vacuum. So kids who are in really unstable environments, their threat system is already going to be overactive. Trauma doesn't discriminate. So it's not a matter of how mature you are, what your capacity is, how spiritual you are. The body's going to respond to trauma in the way it's wired to respond to trauma. I often say people get in like this trauma Olympics. Like how could I possibly tell this story about losing this family pet and talk about it as a trauma when I know that there are refugee families like fleeing for their life? That just feels so ridiculous. And it's like, well, how do you want to tend to your heartbreak? Because if you minimize your suffering, you're probably going to minimize the suffering of other people. Mm -hmm. Or if only like really complex trauma gets to be tended to, then what do we do with those parts of us that are still really fragmented? because of these painful stories. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I think about if a child grows up in a domestic violence context, even if that violence is not directed at them in, like, an explicit way, Mm -hmm. they will still have the same traumatic response as a child who's growing up in a context where the violence is directed at them. Bystander trauma. Right? Yeah. There's something about being in the presence of terror that our body starts to respond in the way it's designed to. Our limbic system gets activated and that fight, flight, or flee response gets triggered, which all of us have known an experience of, whether it's driving a car down the highway and someone pulling in front of you and you feel that adrenaline rush and you just make split-second decisions. Like, that's a limbic response, Mm -hmm. you know, all the way to you've actually known pretty extreme trauma and are dealing with the impact of PTSD. It's like all of that on the spectrum. We're in the realm of that limbic response to a threat, a perceived threat. And so a lot of times what will happen is say someone has grown up, let's say in a context of domestic violence, they're going to adapt to survive their world. Mm -hmm. Um, They're going to make all kinds of assumptions about what's safe, what's not safe, why this violence is coming. A lot of times you'll see kids who internalize it as I probably caused this, or if they didn't cause it, they should have been able to stop it. So if like they couldn't stop it, if something about their beauty or their goodness wasn't enough to stop it, Mm -hmm. what does that say about them? The limbic system gets fragmented in those contexts, meaning there's going to be probably expressions of anxiety or depression that are so familiar that journey with someone through life but then when you get older these things just start to be symptoms that happen in a vacuum Mm -hmm. like you know oh i'm anxious it must be the stress in my life i should go to the doctor get some medicine and deal with it now i'm all for medicine i think that's a really good thing i think there are a lot of things we need to pursue to get help but if you're not actually being invited to go back and say how was my body formed to respond this way? Right. Like, when did my adrenal system start getting flooded with cortisol and norepinephrine? Then there's some sense of these relational styles 
play out or like addictions start forming in order to bring soothing. Right. And then things get tended to again, symptomatically without an invitation to be curious about why this is the body's response to more stress or things playing out in their life today. And I think there a lot of people wouldn't even connect the two. That's the hard thing. For me, the stress that I'm feeling, I'm thinking, oh, that's my adult stress. I have no idea that it began as a child. How do people connect that? Or is everything that you do as an adult connected in some way to your childhood? Oh, I mean, that's such a great question. I would say like, yes and no. (laughs) Like It's a both and that we have this perception, you know, you hear this a lot, like time heals all wounds, or like the past is the past. But the reality is what we actually even know neurobiologically, and our biochemical makeup in our body is that's just simply not true. Mm -hmm. We carry memories Part of the problem is we actually still live in such a Gnostic context that thinks of our emotions and our willpower as something like outside of the body Mm -hmm. and not embodied. These young developmental memories actually live in our neurological makeup. And so, yes, of course, the things that are happening in your life today have been formed and impacted by your developmental stories. And to the extent that you've gotten to receive healing or integration or help and healthy attachment is to the degree that those young parts of you will be able to hijack your emotions. Like I think about when maybe like a stranger you meet responds to you in a certain way, and you know, it's something that would really piss you off. But your response to them internally is so strong that you're like, wow, that feels a little unnecessary. Like, why did I just have Mm -hmm. such a strong response to this person? Chances are you're in the realm because something about what that person did is triggering past experiences for you that have really shaped you. But if you haven't been invited to do that reflective work, then you'll continue to get hijacked when you have those moments. It's why people who grew up in violent contexts will often partner with and be drawn to violence in future situations. There's a sense of, we still want to make sense of our world and we still want to have a different ending than we had before. Maybe this time it'll be different. There's still something in us at a very subconscious level that's trying to work out those places where we've really known deficit or harm. There are also experiences we have in our adult life that shape us. I think I would say it's more the both and of like, of course, you're impacted by your past and your adulthood. And there are experiences we have that compound Mm -hmm. whatever we're carrying with us in our bodies. So sometimes we have new experiences of harm or trauma or new experiences of healing that come because I am a firm believer that grace is grace. It comes. Mm -hmm. We're constantly being impacted by this provision of grace that comes into our lives and offers us healing, whether we're paying attention or not. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. You told me you grew up in Oklahoma and I grew up in Kansas with tornadoes too. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me about that story of you being anxious and fearful. And part of that was discovered through writing and looking back at your anxious, where that anxiety and fearfulness came from. I think that's what I would say is part of why we invite people to write, especially childhood stories, is it invites a moment of paradigm shifting. I started having panic attacks when I was four years old. I think in many ways as my body's response to trauma. And, you know, a lot of times, especially in kids, 
PTSD or symptoms of anxiety or panic aren't necessarily going to show up in the way that they do when we think about a panic attack in an adult. Heart palpitations, thinking that you're having a heart attack. A lot of times with kids, it's going to show up in paranoia. It's going to show up with extreme agitation or lack of emotional impulse. And so I have a lot of forgiveness and compassion that the people in my midst didn't necessarily know what was going on, Mm -hmm. but had pretty extreme paranoia, thought I was going to get kidnapped pretty much everywhere we went. Lots of anxiety that presented as agitation. And I was very high functioning. I was a very high functioning kid. I was very successful at school and played a lot of sports and had friendships, but also had this side of me that often got defined as like, oh, she's fearful and crazy and emotional and anxious. And that as I got older, I started running cross country and track long distance when I was in fifth grade. And I ran all the way until my sophomore year of college. And even that act of running three to seven miles a day got, gave me enough endorphins to kind of keep the anxiety under control. Well, when I got to my sophomore year of college, I quit running and it just, everything exploded. I mean, just, I was out of my mind and out of my body. (laughs) Like it was a very intense season and I still graduated and did really well, but I was working hard. I was working hard to like feel normal and respond normal. Well, if you've grown up with this experience of yourself, but you haven't gotten to enter the stories that shaped you that way. I just would have told people, I'm just a really anxious person. I'm just anxious. I am anxious. I struggle with fear. I'm really afraid, which then brought all kinds of issues with my spiritual formation when peace is a fruit of the spirit. And, you know, there's all these commands that fear is kind of the absence of trust. Right. And I wanted to be really faithful, but I couldn't, like, I just felt like my personality and my body was constantly betraying. It's sinful or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Something that needed to be eradicated as opposed to when I started writing stories telling my stories, looking at my stories in the context of community, having people say, Rachel, I mean, I remember one time Dan said to me, Rachel, do you feel like you're at all ready to start shifting from I'm a fearful, anxious person to I'm actually a very resilient person who survived some really terrifying things. Mm -hmm. And that's that paradigm shift I'm talking about that as we get to start telling our stories, then we start to see a more full picture of what is actually true. And it allows us to kind of push back some of that shame that we've carried and taken in and actually get to move into some of the adult work of what does forgiveness look like? What does blessing these parts of us that have really suffered and have been really resilient and yet are actually wreaking a lot of havoc in our lives. And Maybe we're ready for a new experience or a different understanding of ourself. And so I think that's part of why it's so important to, to start telling some of those formative stories. Even if you would say, well, I don't really have trauma stories. You still have stories that have shaped you. And I've found too that people who tend to repeat their mistakes and marry the wrong person again and again, <laughs> or just mistakes in general. Of ah. Once you start digging into those and you can find their origin story of, and find out where that's coming from. One of the things you mentioned was in the context of community. And I think that's really important too. And I've discovered the importance of that. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of community that knows the value of telling stories. Because you can yeah. tell your mom or your sisters or somebody else, totally. and, you know, here's what's happening. And they can sympathize, but 
having a community who really can hold your story, I think, is important. Can you talk about that? Yeah. To me, this is part of resilience. We are inherently relational beings. Mm -hmm. And I think God actually designed us to not be able to see the full picture without community. And so, when you're in the midst of a community that takes story, like values it as something central and important, and is doing the hard work to be able to see with more clarity and more wisdom, when you're in the presence of a community that is wanting to bear witness to your story, they're also going to hold the things that you may not be ready to actually look at. They're going to do the work of saying, do you see what you wrote here? Like, do you see the contradiction of what you're trying to tell us, but what you've actually shown us? And also people who are patient and kind and loving and fierce who aren't going to barge in. You know, I think one of the things that's really important is to always honor the personhood of another human being and to do the hard work of entering story in a way that honors them and sees it as sacred. It never feels good for any of us for someone else to have knowledge about us that we don't have ourselves. That feels disempowering. And so I think when you're in the right kind of community that is willing to actually do the patient excavating work of entering story and and understands that honor needs to be a part of that, it can just lead to such stunning moments of revelation, of healing, of a new kind of awareness. And, you know, the hard part about growing in awareness is that it's not like awareness in and of itself leads to change. It can actually lead to more painful experiences of like, oh, now I know this is true about why I would repeat these behaviors when they don't actually lead to goodness. And now I'm doing it again. And I actually see that I'm doing it, but it does give us choice. And that to me is what feels so powerful. Yeah, it's that next step in knowing where you, first of all, you don't know that you don't know. Then you know that you don't know. And then you work on knowing better. And then you can work on doing better. Yes. Is it Brene Brown? who I think she has a quote that I've seen going around that's like, if we don't tell our stories, then they tell us. That's Uh what we're talking about here. You can think that you don't have a story, but it's telling the story. You're being told by those stories all the time. And so it's part of doing story work is growing in more capacity to have a choice in those moments to see if things actually could be different. So how would one start? What would be the first steps to invite someone to start looking at their story? You know, one of the resources I think of is Dr. Dan Allender does have a book called To Be Told. And it's a very foundational text on do you know you have a story? And if you do have a story, why would it be important to tell it? So that's a really great resource. There are a lot of, I mean, I know you have resources. Yes. There are really great resources out there that have guided kind of Mm -hmm. help and some built-in community as far as like, how do you start telling these stories? Another resource for people that might say, I know I have stories, but I'm actually scared to tell them or I'm scared to look at them. Finding a good therapist or spiritual director or someone Mm -hmm. whose job it is, is to actually like almost be a carrier of your stories, to be a sojourner with you into those places. That can be really helpful. At the Allender Center, we have some 
offerings that are a great way to come do that in community. One I think of is the story workshop. It involves, you know, like you write your story, you're doing small group work around your story. You're getting really good teaching. You get some one-on-one times. That's a great way for people who say, you know what, maybe I want to kind of explore and see if some of this is true. It is really helpful to find safe community to do some story work with. Now, just as an aside, I know a lot of people ask me this question, How would you find a good therapist? Because there are good therapists out there and sometimes therapists might not know how to engage with their a person's story? Well, at the most basic level, there are different modalities of therapeutic engagement. And if you don't have much connection to psychology, then you wouldn't necessarily know that different therapists are going to have different ways they've been formed. So a lot of therapists are doing more what would be called like cognitive behavioral or just like more behavioral work where you're going to come and say, hey, here's this presenting problem in my life and my friendships and my marriage and my work relationship. And they're going to work with you on how do you in some ways modify your behavior to have healthier connections. There's a time and a place for that. It can be really good work. However, a lot of times that work is not going to go back into the formative stories to say, why are you behaving this way to begin with? And so if you're wanting to do more story work, you're going to want to look for someone who uses language like I do early attachment work. Attachment theory is that theory of why we relate the way that we do based on our primary attachment figures in our family of origin or primary care providers. You're going to want to look for someone who does more like psychodynamic or understands that the past is in the present and is wanting to actually engage some of that work. But my number one tip is most therapists offer a 30 minute, hey, come meet me. Let's see if there's a connection here. And those can be so informative because you actually do want to work with someone that you don't have to work really hard to explain yourself or you understand what they're saying. And you can also look for people who actually say they specialize in trauma work or story work too. Excellent. And I've used psychologytoday.com to search for a therapist before and they do have some of those words in there. So I love that. Give someone a great place to start. Well, Rachel, we have just scratched the surface and I am so thankful that you're here and just getting us started along this work. Where can people find more about you and the work that you do? Sure. Well, I do work full-time with the Allender Center, and I think a lot of our offerings, we have some online courses that are available, conferences and workshops and trainings, so you can find more about what we do there at theallendercenter.org. But I also have a website where I write about trauma and story and healing and what it means to be human size, and I do write a lot about the healing process, not just emotionally but physically. And so you can find me at rachelannclinton.com. Fabulous. And we'll link that up in the show notes as well. Thank you, Rachel, for your time. And I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Stacy. I'm just really grateful for the work that you're doing. Welcome to Stacy's Journal. In this segment, I let you peek into my journal as I share my thoughts on a topic or resilience resource. Rachel and I touched on a side topic of finding a good therapist or counselor. So many people feel they must be in crisis to go to a therapist, or they think only other people do so. I'd like to propose a different way of looking at this. A counselor or therapist is a fantastic brainstorming partner. They are a neutral person, someone who doesn't judge you for your thoughts and feelings in any way. And 
They don't have authority over you, so you don't have to enter into the conversation as a weaker party. If you approach the therapist as a great person to bounce ideas off of, a partner to collaborate with you, and as someone to stand shoulder to shoulder with you to take a keen eye to your life's issues, then you'll gain a tremendous insight and make the most of your connection. Psychology Today is a great resource for finding just the right fit. And, like Rachel said, start by having an introductory conversation with several counselors to see who you click with. If you find a great counselor, please drop me a line and let me know your favorite way to work with that professional. That's all we have for today. In the last episode, Dr. Dan Allender shared his thoughts on the trauma of shame and the agreements we make with ourselves to hide that shame. So if you know anyone who may have been silenced by shame, you might want to go back and have a listen. Next week, we'll interview our third guest from the Allender Center, Jeanette White, and we continue digging into healing from heartache. I love interacting with our listeners on social media. We're on Pinterest, Facebook, and just about anywhere you can hold a great virtual conversation. Before you go, don't forget to go and register for the upcoming webinar, Four Simple Proven Methods to Writing the First Chapter of Your Life Story in Just Seven Days. Head over to stacybrookman.com slash webinar for that. Oh, and one more thing. We're having fun counting down the 100 most important memoirs of the past 200 years. So, our memoir of the day is Cheaper by the Dozen, written by Frank Gilbreth in 1948. No growing pains have ever been more hilarious than those suffered by the riotous Gilbreth clan. What do you get when you put 12 lively kids together with a father, who's a famous efficiency expert, believing that families can run like factories, and a mother who is his partner in everything except discipline? You get a hilarious tale of growing up, making generations of kids and adults laugh along with the Gilbreths. Check out Cheaper by the Dozen and all the memoirs on this list at stacybrookman.com slash 100 memoirs. Today I hope you remember that life is a story and it's never too late to start telling yours.